Well, evening. Welcome. Sorry, Josh. I uh, just walked in front of the fallback speakers, didn't I? And didn't warn you about it. Hey, good job, guys. Hey, what a... Now and again we do it, but you can never do it enough. What about a round of applause for the people who serve us silently up in the bio box there week after week? Good job. Thank you so much, guys. Really, really do appreciate that uh, quiet background, background little way of serving us all. I don't know if you've ever faced this dilemma, but you've been shopping and you didn't you didn't think you'd kind of get stumped on this one. In the pasta section, how much can spaghetti cost, right? But all of a sudden, you were faced with a massive dilemma because a simple packet of noodles, you know, home brand, $2. Cool, easy decision. How different can noodles be? I mean, how many ingredients go into noodles? But all of a sudden, a, a actual brand, a real brand, is having a special down from $2.99, which we all know is really $3, down to $2.50. Only for 50 cents more, you could actually have a real brand of spaghetti. So maybe it is different. It goes through your mind. Maybe actually spaghetti ain't spaghetti. Maybe the one in this colourful little packet is actually better. Maybe it's more ethically produced. I don't know, but is it worth the other 50 cents? Should we splash out? The family will love me for it. Or just go the home brand. I don't know. Do you know what? How many, I wonder how many times a day do you actually sit thinking about the value of something? And then what can really do your head in is that's, that's easy when you're actually dealing in your own currency. But I recall being in Kenya on one occasion, uh, a gentleman, very, very tall Kenyan, had actually taken my suitcase, pretty much didn't really want him, I was happy wheeling my own suitcase, but he had walked it across the road to the car park, and as I parted with the only Kenyan shilling that I had on the occasion, I realised that I just paid the guy around 30 Australian dollars for pulling my suitcase across the car park. No wonder he had such a big smile on his face which was the reverse of the little Thai man who had carried my suitcase up about five flights of stairs. And proudly, I gave him my Thai baht, which later on I realised was probably worth about 20 cents. You know, working out the cost of something can be confusing. Change the currency and it makes it even even more difficult to, to work out. How good are we at weighing up the cost? How good are we at weighing up the cost? Turn with me to Mark chapter 14. This is our passage Today, chapter 13, we've been just looking at a very, very sobering conversation with Jesus about the destruction of the temple and the end times and so forth. And now we move into what we call in Mark more the passion narrative. And I'm going to read from chapter 14, verses 1 through to, through to 9. It'll make sense a little bit as we get into next week why we're stopping there and not verse verse 12. But let me read from Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 9. How good are we at weighing up the cost? Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or all the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, Reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. 
Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. And truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Beautiful story, isn't it? One you're probably fairly familiar with. And so that's why, Heavenly Father, we just ask you now to come and speak to us. Come and speak. Your servants are listening. We know this story, but there's something more in it for each of us tonight, I believe. Father, come and reveal to us deep things from your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Each of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all record a story about Jesus being anointed. Um, Luke chapter 7 definitely stands alone. Different incident, different part of the world. Um, in, that, in that occasion, it's Simon the Pharisee. Um, the woman is well known as a sinful woman who has come and and with tears, she has washed the feet of Jesus, a different incident. The question is, is Matthew, Mark, and John all a second incident later on in the ministry of Jesus? Or are Matthew and Mark kind of recording a second incident and then John perhaps a, a third? Matthew and Mark mention just a woman. Um, John mentions that this woman is Mary. Matthew and Mark talk about an anointing on Jesus' head. John talks about her feet. Um, Matthew and Mark start this particular section by saying it's just two days before the Passover. John mentions that it's six days before the Passover. Um, Matthew and Mark and John, it's all in Bethany. Matthew and Mark, definitely in the, in the home of Simon the leper. John, um, it's in Bethany, the town where Lazarus is from. It doesn't say it's actually in Lazarus's home. My hunch is that there's not three incidences but two and that Matthew, Mark and, and John are all talking about the same one. How do you reconcile that? Well, the fact that that Matthew and Mark don't mention Mary's name is not a problem at all. It could still be Mary. They've just chosen not to mention her name. The fact that it's two days before the Passover and Matthew and Mark can be explained by that's the introduction to the section when the, when the Pharisees get serious about their plotting to kill Jesus. And Mark in particular uh, brackets this section, this beautiful section of devotion to Jesus, and he wants it to stand in stark contrast to the betrayal by the Pharisees and then that of Judas, which comes in you know, later, later in the, the chapter. Um, when they say it's just a couple of days before the Passover, literally when the plotting begins, it is, but strictly speaking, this actually took place even a few days before, as John records. The fact that John records that it's the feet that are anointed, 
But here Jesus says it was the head, the anointed. That makes sense. It was basic hospitality. In fact, anointing a guest as a show of hospitality was quite commonplace. That Mary goes that extra step and thinking about the special connection that they have with Jesus after Lazarus was raised from the dead makes perfect sense that she would anoint him, but not just feet, but head first and feet so that actually he then records, my entire body has been prepared, you know, for burial. So I think, I think Matthew, Mark and John, I think it's the same incident. And therefore, we can pick up a few extra details from John that Matthew and Mark allude to, but they don't necessarily fill, fill us in on all of that detail. So I'm going to assume Mary on this occasion. We've got a really expensive perfume. Um, we, we know from all of those passages that this is seriously indulgent. This is, this is like the sort of household item that you would describe as an heirloom passed on from mother to daughter who becomes mother to daughter, who becomes mother to daughter, and so forth. But here Mary says, no, this, this beautiful gift that has been passed on to me, this is what it has been destined for. This is what it has been, this is what it is meant for. This is how it is to be used. We're talking about, um, we're talking about uh, an average laborer's annual wage here. If a laborer is paid on a work site, say, $20 an hour, works eight hours a day, 7.6 days a week, 52 weeks a year, the annual wage, it's, it's going to be in the vicinity of around $65,000. Take off tax there, but we'll leave it on for, for the sake of this argument. Uh, we're talking about the equivalent today, a $65,000 bottle of perfume. I don't think even the best husband here has probably produced one of those on returning from a trip or for an anniversary or a birthday. And uh, yeah, <laughs> you're the poor furrow. No, this is, this is a serious bottle of perfume. Um, do you know, I, I looked up perfumes, a little bit of research here. Devastating, absolutely devastating what I discovered. But within the top 10, um, there, is a, there is a perfume called, called Joy. It's, it's quite extraordinary, actually. It was created in 1929. So, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's past the test of time, you would say. It's not like one of these popular brands named after the latest person who's famous for being famous. No, this, was, this goes back to 1929, um, designed in French. It was launched in 1936 and has become one of the most highly regarded fragrances ever created. At the 2000 Fifi Awards, I always thought Fifi was the name of a dog, so I'm, I'm picturing small dogs or sniffing perfumes or something like that as the judges. But at the 2000 Fifi Awards, it was voted as the scent of the century. Seriously. Um, it, it actually even was more popular than Chanel No. 5. It's called Joy, and it's exemp is, is exemplary of the floral genre and was designed to lift people's spirits during the Great Depression. Here's how you make it. An unprecedented 10,000 jasmine flowers and 336 roses are required to create just a single ounce of this perfume. 
Okay, that's all you've got to do, guys. 10,000 jasmine flowers and 336 roses go into one ounce, which is the equivalent of around 28 grams or 20, 28 milliliters. Um, and, um, and that is why it is worth around 800 US dollars per ounce, which um, if you were to take a bottle around this, this size, by the way, this is not... This is not filled with joy, like I would like it to be. But it is, but it is around 1.4 litres. Um, about one and a half litres of pure joy would equal $60,000, $65,000. So when Mary brings this in to, a, to anoint Jesus, um, the way that it was done, you could get smaller vessels of, of the similar perfume, pure nard and so forth, which would be used you know, just for an occasion. But when a bottle this size was broken, it doesn't keep and it doesn't reseal. When you broke the jar, it was to be used. And that's exactly what, what Mary did. She broke open the jar. And you can imagine the entire household was just, just filled with the beautiful aroma, the scent of, of this expensive perfume. It was, it was pretty, pretty amazing. That's, that's what Mary has done. Firstly, pouring it over Jesus' head and then over his feet as well, which she, she then washes. It's a beautiful, beautiful act. And yet different people in this passage see this in a very different light. But I want to suggest that every single one of us have something of immense value just like this, which, when presented to God, has the potential to bring him great joy, immense joy. The question is, what is it for you? What is it? What is the thing of great value that you hold and you store up in a bottle that, when poured out for God, brings him the sort of joy that this brought Jesus on, on this particular occasion. Well, let's, let's have a look at how different people were understanding or seeing this particular act of, of Mary's. Uh, firstly, I guess we, we have to note the disciples um, in verse 4. What did they see? They saw a waste. Why this waste of perfume, they say. It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. What did they see? They saw a price tag. Whereas Mary saw a beautiful gift, they saw a price tag. They failed to see the purpose of what Mary did. And therefore, they failed to see the value as well. We know from, from John chapter 12, possibly here, when it, when it said some of those present, Matthew enlightens us, and he, we know that we're talking about the disciples here. John, we can go a step further, and it seems that the disciples were somewhat incited by one particular person, the person who actually was the holder of the disciples' money bag, Judas who was actually stealing from the money bag and was known as a thief, but suddenly had great compassion on the poor. There was Judas, perhaps, who was, who was starting this conversation and, 
And it's a bit of a pity, but sometimes we do see in God's family that, that somebody offers up something beautiful to God. You might do something beautiful, even extravagant for God. But don't assume that you will always receive applause from others. Some of the harshest critics of extravagant, extravagant gifts to God can, can actually come from, from others who really should know better. I recall years ago, my, um, my mum was just in the foyer at church and and we were overseas at the time, and she relayed this conversation, and she said, oh, yeah, somebody asked me one time when I think I talked to her about the fact that we were heading back overseas again shortly, and how are you and Dad coping? And, and she said, well, somebody asked me at church one Sunday, you know, how do I go with the fact that my, my son and my daughter-in-law and, and the grandchildren are living far away, and I don't get to see them very often? I said, what did you say to them? And she said, oh. I said, I've been praying all my life that Stuart and all my children would, would follow the Lord with all of their heart. So he's done that. How can I then go and complain to God that he's gone overseas in obedience to God just like I prayed and now hold it against him because their obedience? I would much prefer that they stay in step with God and that I have to pay this small cost of not seeing my grandchildren. Now, at the time, I was thinking, beauty, we're released, we can go again. But now that I have grandchildren of my own, wow, all of a sudden I'm realising what a sacrifice that was from mum. I see it in a whole different light. But sometimes not everybody else will appreciate the, the gift that you give. Nonetheless, I would say keep on giving. Keep on giving. You cannot outgive God. What did the disciples see? They saw a price tag. What did Mary see? Verse 6, Jesus speaking on her behalf and vindicating her some, he says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. This was, a, this was an act of kindness. This was a, this was a beautiful act that, that Mary did. The disciples saw a waste, they saw a price tag. What did Mary see? She, she saw somebody who was worth it, frankly. Uh, she had this, this beautiful jar. It was worth a tremendous amount, but she quite simply saw somebody who was worth all of this and more. You know, often it's, it's not about how much can we give. That's legalism. It's about how much is God worthy that's relationship. Mary deeply admired Jesus. She saw somebody who was worthy of everything that she could give. The disciples saw this gift, this perfume, this, this heirloom, this extravagance. She saw Jesus. The disciples saw the cost, a price tag, Day after day after day of labor, a whole year's sweat and tears poured out in one moment. Mary saw Jesus. The disciples saw alternative uses for the perfume. It could have been given to this person. It could have, been, it could have gone to so many different things. 
So many causes. And how do you argue against that? (gasps) Mary saw Jesus. And she was worth everything that she could give. And that's what she had in that moment. Again, it's, it's not about how much we give, but how much do we love? How much is God the object of our affection and our, our devotions? But then there's something, it seems, what did Mary see? There's something that Mary didn't see. For Mary, it wasn't coming just from her heart. It was compelled. Jesus, Jesus deserved this. He was worthy of it. And so she... Extravagant, she anoints him as you would as a gesture of hospitality. But what she didn't see was that she was doing more than that. She was actually not just acting out of impulse, but perhaps out of a prompting by her heavenly father. Who I wonder when you look at the the context of this passage, let me just jump back for a moment to verse 3. While he was in Bethany, a a town, very, very special to the heart of Jesus, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, he was amongst friends. This was the closest to family that Jesus had. This is the start of the passion narrative. Jesus is heading to the cross. He's heading towards betrayal. Even those closest to him will deny him. But the father, before he goes along that path, chooses this moment to minister to his son. For a whole host of reasons, the day on which the Sabbath falls and all sorts of other things, Jesus won't actually receive an anointing, not least the which is his resurrection. (laughs) He won't receive the traditional anointing for burial, but father's got that taken care of as only a father could, and only as a father would. He arranges for his son to be anointed here by the hands of Mary. What did she see? She saw somebody who was worth everything. What didn't she see? She didn't realize she was anointing Jesus for his burial. What a beautiful, beautiful thing that all of a sudden Jesus highlights. She did far better than she knew She gave what she had, but more than that, she had the privilege that only one human being on all earth for all time would ever have to anoint the Son of God for his burial. That's huge. What would you give for that? She didn't see all of the implications of what it was that she was doing. But how many times do we have an opportunity to anoint the Son of God? Actually, maybe more times than you know. Paul, later on, is writing to the Philippian church. And as he's writing to them, this is a church he has a lot of affection for. In chapter 4, he is talking about the fact that, you know, sometimes I, I have to go without things. Sometimes I actually have more than I need. Either way, I'm content. I love it when you send your gifts to me, he says to the Philippian church, for whether I have a need or not, it's not about that. What I love is what is actually given to you on account of your, of your gift. And so in Philippians chapter 4, he actually writes to them and he says, 
just that, verse 17, not that I desire your gifts. What I do desire is that more be credited to your account. Verse 18, I have received full payment and I have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received a gift from you. These gifts are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Did you realize that whenever you offer a gift to God, it could be a financial gift, it could be a gift of time, it could be a gift of obedience, it could be, it could be the surrender of something that you've been holding dear that you probably shouldn't have been hanging on to, it could be anything, but whenever you give a gift to God, it rises to the very heavenlies as a fragrant offering. In the spiritual realm, it's so much more than what you think. It's it's, it's something in a bag, a collection bag as it comes around. It's, a, it's an act of service. It's giving of your time in, in some way to the church or to somebody who is in need. It's, it's a surrender of something that I probably shouldn't have been hanging on to anyway, God, but there it is. It's a simple act of obedience. It's a gift to God. In the earthly realm, it doesn't feel like much at all, but spiritually speaking, it rises like a, like a beautiful aroma. It's like the, the top has is, is just been taken off something very precious, and, and up it goes, and it actually pleases God. It gives him a great sense of, of joy, and we can do that through simple acts of obedience. Truth is, we might not have the privilege of literally anointing the Son of God with a beautiful perfume, but through our acts of obedience and, and through just doing the will of God, abiding in Him and doing His will, we can actually bring joy to our Heavenly Father. That seems to be the way that it works. So here's the question. We all have a jar. We all have something of value. What's in your jar? When I was growing up as a kid, we had this thing called a lucky dip. Anyone ever, ever do a lucky dip? Did, did you, is that still a thing? Did you do that at school? Is what school fates and so forth? You're either lucky or you're unlucky. You usually do it, don't you? You usually do it because you see what that kid got and you think, that is awesome. I want to do that. That is lousy. Why can't I have that? You know, you never know quite what you're going to get. Some things, there's good things in a lucky dip and there's not so good things in a lucky dip. Sometimes in the bottles that we hold precious to ourselves, there can be good things in those bottles, like a real gift of time and maybe finances, something that's precious to us and so forth. But sometimes what's actually in the bottle that needs to be surrendered to God isn't good at all. These can be the, a sin that we're holding dear and close to ourselves that we just won't let go of. It could be riches, but it could be a grudge. It could be doubt. It could be hurt. It could be insecurity. There are all sorts of things that we hang on to too tightly that we don't want to let go of. And Jesus says, oh, I want you to be free. Please, would you give it to me? Uh, there's all sorts of reasons why we would, we would hang on to things and keep them close to us. But Jesus says, would you please pour that out for me? Would you turn that into a gift for me? Would you please, would you please give that to me so that you can truly be free? I promise you it will be like a fragrant offering to your heavenly Father. 
Each of us have a bottle. Each of us have something that's precious to us, something that's valuable and, and something that we'd probably prefer not to let go of. And Jesus says, please be free. Give it over. Pour it out for me. Would you break the jar for me? And I guess that's the question we've got to come back to tonight. We look at this passage. It's not just an incident that took place thousands of years ago, and it did. But it's a reminder that pure devotion is something that each follower of Jesus Christ is asked to give. Pure devotion. If Jesus is who he says he is, would you break the jar? If Jesus is really who he says he is, would you break the jar? Hanging on to friendships, hanging on to the promise of fame and popularity. In 1882, Australia sent a cricket team from the colony to England. And there at the Oval, they, they played the Brits. And uh, usually on the home turf, of course, Britain would always win. But in that fateful year in 1882, two English batsmen were there. One, Charles Studd, C.T. Studd. What a name, huh? He's <laughs> quite a batsman, I bet. <laughs> Charles Studd had already made two centuries that season. Um, and he was the guy that you wanted at the wicket. But the other batsman who was in, a tail ender, didn't quite see the strategy and he decided he would win it for the Brits. Got bowled out, the team was out. Stunning loss. And the, the press were actually pretty vicious, as only British press could probably be. <laughs> but they recorded, or one, one article covering the cricket recorded it this way, in affectionate remembrance of English cricket, which died at the Oval on the 29th of August, 1882. The body will be cremated and the ashes taken to Australia. <laughs> That is the start of the ashes as we know it. Of course, the Brits in 1882 and 1883 came, came back for our summer and, uh, and, and fought valiantly and, and were presented, having won the series, they were presented with a little urn called the ashes after the bales were burned. And that is the urn that we now famously celebrate and, and play for each, each summer. Um, as, they, as they come out. On that urn, if you could, if you could read it, is the name C.T. Studd, the bestman who probably should have been hitting the ball for England on that fateful day. Quite an amazing guy, Charles Studd. He shocked all of England when he announced that he was retiring from cricket at his peak so that he could be a missionary. He's most famous, actually, not for his cricket, but for his heart initially for Africa. He was one of the Cambridge Seven who responded to, to a call by Hudson Taylor to come to China to, to help reach the unreached there in China. And he did that 
And then after a, after a while, he, he married, he went to the US and he was, he was part of a number of people who, who began the student volunteer movement, which was this massive, remarkable thrust of students into the mission field throughout the world. But then he had such a heart for Africa that he actually started a mission pretty much by that name, which later was rebadged as World Evangelization Crusade, which we know as WEC, which is actually where we just sent Amber a couple of weeks ago to go and study at the WEC College in Tasmania so that she can prepare for, for service. It was all founded by an English cricketer. Fame, fortune, important, not for him. He simply found something that was worth more than all of the possibilities that lay ahead of him. And when he found that somebody who was worth more, he decided it was worth breaking the jar and pouring it all out for his master and Lord Jesus Christ. He actually wrote a poem. He was not just a cricketer, apparently, but, um, but a poet. You might even know, at least if by title, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Have you heard that line before? C.T. Studs. Let me just read to you two verses to pick up a little bit of his passion, what he decided was worth pouring his entire life out for. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I'll, I know I'll say, "Twas worth it all. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Charles Studd found something worth pouring his, his life out for. Little incident that takes place in the home of Simon the leper. Seen by different angles by different people. What the disciples saw was distinctly different to what Mary saw. And there were things that Mary didn't see. But what did Jesus see? Well, yes, Jesus saw that, that his body had been prepared for burial. But when he looked around that room, did he, did he, did he look at a mob of disciples? You still don't get it. <laughs> you still don't get it. Mary gets it. You still don't get it. Or did he look around the room that night and say, Simon, nicknamed the leper, but he isn't anymore because I healed him. Lazarus, what nickname would you give to him? I raised him from the dead. Martha, busy in the kitchen. Mary, what a dear. And then he could have named each and every one of his disciples, looked at them and said, for them, if my life could be bottled, I'd break the jar. What about the crowds of the day? Did he see them as a recalcitrant mob who like sheep are just all going their own way? Or did he see them as harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd? And if anyone knew what a shepherd should be like, Jesus knew. 
The good shepherd is the one who will lay down his life for his sheep. If life could be bottled, I'd break the jar. And tonight, as he looks at each and every one of us here, does he see you with all of your failings and your good days but your bad days? And Does he throw his hands up and think, oh, what was all that about? No, I think he sees each and every one of you tonight and he actually saw you in his mind's eye a couple of thousand years ago and says if life could be bottled for you and you and you and you, I'd break the jar. I'd break the jar. That's what I think Jesus saw. He saw you. And he agreed to have his life broken for you and his life poured out for you. And that's what we now actually celebrate, the love of the Father who gave his Son, the love of the Son who gave his life for you and for me. We're going to celebrate that together in a moment. I'm going to pray usual stations at different places and you can you can go to any of those stations take the take the bread and the cup hang on to the cup we'll drink together a little bit later but as you hold those two symbols we sometimes have referred to them as gospel food this is this is food which declares the good news of Jesus Christ that if life could be bottled he agreed to have the jar broken for you to have his Life poured out for you. He did this with you in mind out of obedience to the Father. The bread reminds us that his body was literally broken. The wine reminds us his blood was literally poured out and spilt for you. It covers all sin. It atones for everything that you've ever done, everything that you will ever do. It has a washing effect and a purifying effect so that you can boldly approach the very throne of God and embrace your heavenly Father. Jesus paves the way. These two symbols remind us of that fact. And if you've, you've never quite come to that place in your life where you have understood this, but maybe tonight you have and you're thinking, how can I get in on that? I want that kind of relationship with my heavenly Father, I, I want to be, I want to be with God. I want to be family. I want to be a part of that. Then Jesus has paved the way, and you can be, with a very, very simple prayer. I'm going to invite us all. Why don't we just shut our eyes for a moment and and let me lead you through a prayer that, if you have never done this before, you could actually pray this prayer. And tonight, become a part of the family of God. And it would go something like this. Oh, God, I do believe in you, and I believe that you have been crying out my name for eternity. And suddenly tonight, I'm hearing it. I've been holding you at a distance. I've not understood, and I've not responded, perhaps, as I should. I've rebelled, I've gone my own way, I've lived primarily a life for myself. That's called sin. But I believe that your son Jesus has paid the price of my sin, 
a sacrifice, as it were, and you no longer count my sin against me. I believe that to be true. I believe Jesus was who he said he was. I believe he died and was raised again. And in the same way, I can now die to myself and be raised up to a whole new life in Jesus. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for receiving this prayer and including me as a part of your family. Now I want to follow you for the rest of my days.